I think it would be silly to bypass what just happened um, up here. This is going to move me a little bit, so uh, forgive me if I lose it. Could you stand up again? I know you were just standing, but this is church calisthenics. It's good for the body, good for the soul. Um, hey, if you're here and you are, uh, you're struggling with fertility, uh, you have, man, do you feel it? I can hardly even get through it. Um, there, obviously, because of what we just did, there's something here over this, right? Yeah. Um, if you're struggling with fertility, if you're somebody who just wants to get pregnant, if you are um, somebody who has had miscarriages, if you are currently pregnant, if you've had abortions, I believe that there is miracle power in the room right now, that this is a holy ordained moment. So. I'm not going to ask you to, to stand out in any particular way. I don't think that's needed uh, right now, but if all of us would just sort of do this with our hands. So Holy Spirit, we welcome your movement here at Life Center. We welcome the furthering of the generations. We just declare over Life Center, this will be whew, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. This will be a house where every generation is represented. This will be a house where the barren woman rejoices. Man. We say life, 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 life in Jesus' name. If you're watching online, this applies to you. Life in Jesus' name. If you've had an abortion, I just declare right now in the name of Jesus that your womb is being restored as the safe, life-giving place it was made to be, that you yourself are forgiven. You're being restored right now in the name of Jesus. Even physical damage from abortions, in the name of Jesus, a repairing of the mechanism for reproduction, a repairing of the heart and the faith for reproduction. And in the name of Jesus, I declare strength over every human body that needs it, fertility, health, full restoration. We declare over every wayward child a call home. Every child who was dedicated at their youngest years and has walked away, come home in Jesus' name. The door is open. The door is open. We call you in. In the name of Jesus, I ask for faith for parents who committed their children to the Lord and have watched them wander. And right now, in the name of Jesus, we just declare this is a church of life. That this is a place where life reigns. So I bless you, Life Center, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. I felt like I've, it's hard to do that stuff because I, obviously I'm emotional. <laughs> it's, but I just felt how silly would it be to pass that up. Well, hey, we've, um, <clears throat> we've been in this season in the church calendar that is really unique. It's very remarkable. Um, I think it's, it, it, obviously it sort of ties with Christmas. But um, in my heart, this is the thing that stands out the most to me in all that we do cyclically within the church, this 
period where we celebrate, or at least remember, the betrayal and the crucifixion of Jesus and the Last Supper and all that stuff. And then we carry on into the resurrection. And right now we're in between that and the ascension. And of course, this ultimately culminates in Pentecost, in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so there, there is, and I, I'll just mentioned this briefly um, to the guys a couple of Fridays ago. This isn't magic and this isn't superstition and it, you know, it can get kind of weird, but there is something really special about the timing of what goes on in the church calendar. There is something unique about it. There is something special about Easter. There is something special about Christmas. We're being tied in those moments to the entirety of the church. Uh, we, we believe, and I, I'm a huge fan of this, for the billion soul harvest, right? You've heard this kind of language, amen, right? Yes and amen, do it, Lord. Um, it's worth remembering there's already been a billion soul harvest. There are easily, if you just look at the stats throughout history in the last 2,000 years, there are easily a billion souls in heaven now. Easily, and that's not even counting old covenant Jews and however that worked out, right? Uh, we're connected to those people when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus in Pentecost. That's really big. That's really, really big. So sticking to the season, I just felt from the Lord that this morning I wanted to stick to this thing. I felt like he wanted to stick to this thing. Um, so we're in between. We're in this space called the counting of the Omer, right? It's bookended. It's, it, right before it, there's the, uh, the first fruits offering. That's not just something we do. That's actually something that was done. And then it culminates um, a couple days from now, a couple weeks from now, in a grain offering, this thing, this, this gift of the omer. So you give the first fruits in faith for the harvest because you're giving it at the beginning, not knowing how it will turn out. There could be some weather disaster, whatever. And then at the end of it, you give a grain offering, which is evidence of the harvest. Right? It is that which was promised and the promise that we then held on to by faith in that first fruits thing. Um, and so this is the place that we're occupying right now. This is exactly where we are. This is the space where so much was changing. When Jesus had died and was resurrected and nobody knew what was going on. Right? Nobody knew what was going on. They were prepared even though they didn't understand. So fundamentally, this is a season of transition throughout church history, including in its founding. And if you're, you may be, I think you're aware um, that this is a season of transition now, right? The whole world is going through something and look, I feel a little bit like those disciples trying to figure it out, right? I see some things. It's like, yeah, maybe this, maybe that. We kind of know where we're coming from. I don't even think we're that good at knowing where we are. And then who knows what's next? But we're clearly shifting. The whole world is clearly shifting, right? So I think that there's a unique alignment between where we are now, what we're going through now, and what occurred 2,000 years ago in this same time frame. Um, 
So I do want to just sort of give a, a little prequel to this. Um, I've talked, I talked a couple of Wednesdays ago on what I'm phrasing, and there's probably a better way to say this, but seasons of sovereign intent. Um, the, the, and I'm going to give you a very brief touch on this so that I can get to where I want to go. Um, sovereignty is this idea. Uh, we, we use it. It's, a, it's kind of one of these words that gets thrown around more often than it gets defined. Um, the idea behind sovereignty is independent operation. Okay, so we'll call a king or a ruler a sovereign, right? And maybe that sovereign pulls somebody in for an advisor position or they put something up to a board or a committee or whatever it may be. But ultimately, that sovereign, if they choose a course of action, they don't need anybody's agreement. They don't need anybody's endorsement. They don't need anybody's collaboration. It will be done, right? So God, and Ben just touched on this a second ago, God does this, there's this, this tension, and a lot of times we like to camp out on one extreme or the other between sovereignty and free will, and the reality is they coexist beautifully. 99.999% uh, of the time, what you're feeling, what you're collaborating with the Lord in is very specific to you. It's effective. It's this back and forth thing, and it bears fruit because of intimacy, right? But there are times, and it seems to happen about once a generation, when God purposes in his heart to do something in the earth, and there is no resisting it. There's no resisting it. Um, the example that I use the most, because I think it's, it's recent enough to be relatable, but it's significant enough that it really exemplifies what I'm talking about, is what we ended up with calling the Jesus People Movement, right? Prior to that, it was really hippies, right? There was this thing, let me, let me I just thought through a little bit of what was going on in the world in those days. Um, we had what we call the greatest generation, right? Let's just say you were born in 1900, Okay, while you're growing up, World War I, you're growing up, now remember, you're growing up in an environment where racism in the United States is very fresh. My grandfather knew Civil War veterans. Okay, so that's how far removed from the Civil War we were in 1900. It was 36 years prior to 1900, right, 1864? That it ended? Okay. So this racial tension is serious. Segregation is serious. Jim Crow is going on. All that stuff's going on. World War I occurs. They come into the Roaring Twenties, and the lie, there's this deceptive economic bump that then culminates in the Great Depression. So it's like their hearts were broken by this promise broken. The Roaring Twenties promised economic deliverance and did not deliver. Uh, from the Great Depression right into World War II, and now you're 30 or 40, you're having kids, and right as soon as this ends, you're sending your kids to the Korean War, to the Vietnam War. Okay, these people were traumatized. These were the fathers and the mothers of the hippies. They were traumatized at a time when there was no language for trauma, at a time when there was really no environment in which to process. There was none of this stuff going on. There was no openness, especially on the masculine side of the story. But right, So these people then raised children who were functionally fatherless. They may or may not have had a father at home, 
But we know now, right, because we talk about this stuff in today's world, um, we know what that kind of trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, does to the home in the marriage and parenting, right? So these guys, these kids are growing up in a world where you don't talk about emotion, in a world where their fathers are preoccupied, where who knows what's going on in their hearts and in their minds because of what they've seen and what they've done. Okay, so this is all setting the stage for this incredible revival we call the Jesus People Movement. Right? You guys with me? Okay, thanks, Dave. I got one. I'll take what I can get. Okay, that environment creates this generation. This generation begins to seek belonging and freedom. They all do it. It's amazing. It may have started small, but it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it eventually became global. I believe that what was happening at that time was a sovereign intent of God, that God was stirring the hearts of men and women towards freedom, towards deliverance, towards wholeness. He was breaking chains. He was breaking patterns. He was setting people free and pushing forward. And every heart responded to what God was doing regardless of their understanding of it. That's a sovereign intent. That's God doing something that you just, you're just a part of. You're just a part of, right? Okay. I think we're in a similar environment right now, a similar season right now. Um, it's the same kind of thing where it's happening globally. It's happening generationally. It all sort of makes sense, okay? Um, in that environment, a pastor named Chuck Smith created a space at his church for these hippies who were being saved, mostly totally independent of, of people ministering to them. A lot of them were having visions and dreams and coming to the Lord. Um, I, I heard Sean Bolt say this the other day. I haven't looked it up, so I'm not going to. But, but I did hear him say 85% of the evangelical pastors in the country today were saved in that time. And it's believable. Totally believable. I don't, I, again, I didn't vet that statistic. But, um, so Chuck Smith creates a space for these people to come in who the church, by and large, had rejected, right? Now, they got saved. You could, they just didn't get clean. You know, like they were, <laughs> they were still shaggy, dirty kind of people. It's okay. It's all right. A lot of them outgrew it. Um, you know. So he creates a space. He inadvertently begins this sort of fathering, right? It wasn't even his plan, but it is what happens. And he has a particular, and this is going to be, I promise this will be gracious, but I got to say something. He, he inadvertently fathers them into all of his particulars, including this excessive rapture focus. He was telling them all Jesus was coming in 1981. And this affected how those hippies who became pastors spent the next 30, 40, 50, some of them still are just getting ready to evac, right? He was in the season, and in being in it, one of his little emphases just got a little bit out of control, and it changed the trajectory of a whole generation. So while those hippies who got saved were busy, in a good way, coming out of the world and being separate, preparing for a pre-post-mid-whatever 
trib rapture, their cohort, which were not saved, were infiltrating universities, were getting into politics, were forming think tanks, were creating businesses, what would become the biggest businesses in all of human history. And the Christians were largely absent. He was in the season, but there was this tiny miscalculation that had major consequences. This is why being in the season and aware of what God's doing in it is important. Okay? Because we're in one of those seasons now. And 2,000 years ago, <clears throat> so was Mary Magdalene, so was Peter, and so was John. They watched the world that they knew go from expectation to change, to expectation to change, to expectation to change. They were all from towns that were known to be hotbeds of zealot Zionism, this intense, we're waiting for a militaristic overthrowing. All the rebellions came from these towns that these guys were from, sort of the redneck towns, a little bit like Harrisburg, and uh, <laughs> like my house. They were in the Old Covenant for half their lives. And they participated in the shift to the new. And it happened now, 2,000 years ago. So I want to talk briefly about seasons of transition. I want to use them as an example. So if you have your Bible, turn to John 20. I'm going to read 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now just get out of flannel graph mode and imagine the intensity of that moment. They, we know where this is going, right? And it's so hard to unsee the ending that you've already seen, right? They have no idea what's going on, and they admit it later. I love this about John. He admits it. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter. I love that detail. And reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Man. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she didn't know it was Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary, oh, can you just imagine? <laughs> the, the, he said things into her cells that formed who she was at conception. And here he is again saying her name. And it flips the switch and she turns to him and says in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. The lights went on. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. Right? What an incredible, unimaginable moment. Unbelievable right? So these three show up. I like the sequence as John lays it out because it's like this, there's always this like edge of competition inside of the disciples. And I, I think that's really, I enjoy that. <laughs> I think that's fun. I don't even think it's unsanctified. I don't think it went away. They're just boys, you know. I get it. I don't mind. So if you're taking notes, you can call this rules to live by in seasons of transition. This is where we are. This is not just where they were. Okay. This, is, this is one of the burdens that we bear as an apostolic church. We don't get to be swept up in the move. We're called to lead in it. Lead by example, lead as a servant. But we're called to lead in it. That means we actually have to know the time and the season. It means we have to understand. We're not looking to somebody else to set a precedent. Many are looking to us to set a precedent. So we have to know this stuff. And there's no way to know this stuff just intuitively or, or by reasoning. Obviously, can you imagine the situation they were in trying to just figure it out? Good luck. It's not going to happen, right? Uh, so I want to use those three characters. And this is just, this is, I'm sure this is by no means exhaustive. It's just something that I felt like the Lord highlighted to me. I uh, want to use those three characters to talk about three elements that I believe the Lord's asking us as Life Center in this season to walk in as we navigate transition, global transition. It's a big deal, okay? So Peter, let's use Peter as the first example. And here's what I think iconizes Peter's personality. It's zeal, okay? One of the rules to live by in seasons of transition, be zealous. Peter was characterized by zeal. What is zeal? Oxford Dictionary says it's great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an object. Uh, the way that I sort of summarize it is just zeal acts. Zeal does things. It acts. And you see this again and again. There are all these times when, when nobody really knows what to do and Peter just does something. And there's no evidence he was hearing from the Lord. And sometimes there's some evidence that he might not have been hearing from the Lord, right? Like when the Lord told him that he was acting like Satan, right? Probably wasn't hearing from the Lord. But he was doing things. He found himself active in a season when many had no clue what to do, so they withheld. He instigated. 
He did things. So here are some examples of what he did. He, in Acts 1, when no one has a clue what's going on, he leads in the replacement of Judas and the installation of Matthias as an apostle. It just occurred to him. It doesn't, there's no evidence, even in the passage. I looked closely because I was hoping he was being led by the Spirit. There's no evidence that he was. He just kind of knew the scripture. And he's like, well, I think there's supposed to be 12 of us. And we knew he was destined to fall. So, well, here we go. And then they do witchcraft, basically. He's like, I don't know, uh, we could cast a die and figure out who it's going to be. What? <laughs> How weird is that? Okay, all right, Peter. I guess we'll do something because you're doing it, right? This is acting. He goes into the empty tomb first, according to John 20, right? That chunk that we just read. John got there first, but Peter went in. Okay, this is zeal, right? Uh, John 21, he instigates this kind of famous fishing trip. And the, the, the way it says it is just hilarious. It, it literally says they're kind of standing around, and he goes, uh, I, I'm going fishing. And then like the other guys just went, oh, okay, we'll go too. What? No Holy Spirit that we know of, right? No nothing. He's just like, I guess I'll go fishing. They're like, yeah, sure, sounds good. And then while they're out there, Jesus appears on the shore making food for them, and this whole beautiful thing occurs, right? When they see Jesus on the shore, it was Peter. John recognized Jesus. Peter jumped out of the boat, swims like a psycho, swims to the shore, right? Okay. Peter wasn't just swept up in what was happening. He was leading in it. And before he understood fully, he was willing to act. This is zeal. This is a challenge to us. It doesn't have to be in ministry. It doesn't have to be in any context that's churchy. That's all that stuff. It can be in your home. It can be in your job. It can be in your school board. It can be in your community. However it looks for you within your sphere of influence, zeal acts. I love, and I'll just sort of go through this quickly. I won't read it. But in Luke 22, there's this account, and there are several accounts like this, of uh, the disciples basically arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. And it's comical because we read it comically. It probably was serious. I can imagine them sort of like, you know, a left hook, and they're on the ground, and you know, who knows? They're, you know, again, they're just boys. So they're trying to figure out who's going to be greatest in the kingdom, and Jesus comes in, and when I probably would have just said, hey, guys, that's tacky. Don't be so weird. Jesus comes in and he says, oh, no, 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 no. That's not how to be greatest in the kingdom. This is how to be greatest in the kingdom. You've got to be the servant of all. So he literally hands them the answer to the thing that I personally would have thought was some sort of a wrong ambition, right? He endorses the ambition by handing them the solution, the right mechanism for becoming greatest in the kingdom. This is why zeal's okay. I think we need to say this sometimes because... Zeal's not cool, it's not marketable, it's very unsexy. It's also essential, okay? So zeal, cultivate zeal. You can cultivate zeal, okay? The second way we navigate seasons of transition, we practice humility, and this is John in the story, right? So John refers to himself six times in the book of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is a hump. Now, look, it's not like he had never done anything. I'm sure he could have put some other denotation of his achievements 
after his name. He was writing this story, right? John the tall, dark and handsome. John the whatever, right? That caught the biggest catfish on Friday night, whatever. Uh, they're just really redneck to me in my head, you know. So they're using chicken livers and catching red or catching not catching rednecks, catching catfish. <laughs> I don't know if you can catch a redneck using chicken liver. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm carrying on. Um, he could have defined himself any way he wanted, but he chose to define himself by the fact that Jesus loved him. This is humility. This is humility, right? Paul says in Romans 12, uh, verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think about yourself with sober judgment in accordance with, what, with the faith God has distributed to each of you. That word sober is really interesting, sober judgment. It basically means be honest in your self-assessment. It doesn't mean pretend you're trash if you're not, right? And it doesn't mean, obviously, to, to over-assess. I think we tend to really be put off by the over-assessing, but this goes both directions. So when John says, I'm the one who Jesus loved, he's choosing to define himself by the right thing. Because that trumps failure and success. It's just always true, right? So here's what, it, what happens in that scenario. If you're humble, you bring freedom from comparison and from false humility, right? No competition, none of that stuff. So here's what, here's what John admits to in this passage. Remember, he wrote that 10-verse thing that we read at the beginning. He admits that he outran Peter to the tomb. He's not ashamed to admit that he did that. And he admits that he saw the empty tomb and didn't go in, but Peter did. It's John telling the story. That's not a favorable light to cast himself in. He's not shrinking back from the fact that he got there first, and he's willing to admit that Peter went in because John didn't. He specifically says, right? He admits that he only believed after he went in. He looked into the tomb and waited. He admits that he didn't understand the Old Testament scriptures about Jesus. That's why he couldn't figure out what was going on. He admits that he was the first to recognize Jesus on the shore of Galilee in John 21. He's, again, he's telling that story. And then he admits that Peter was the one who jumped in and swam to him. So he's totally free from comparison He's not bothered by his successes or his failures in an inordinate way. He is defining himself as the one who Jesus loves. Stable, rock solid. And then I love this because in, in just in my imagination, this is sort of John's influence on Peter. 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Okay. So, be zealous. Be like Peter. Practice humility. Be like John. And then last, live in purity. Be like Mary Magdalene. So, man, Mary's an interesting one. We often, we, we get this idea that she was a prostitute. There's actually, that's very unlikely. There's no evidence for that. Um, that happened in the 6th century. Uh, Pope Gregory kind of conflated her with the woman that Jesus was caught in adultery and all that stuff. There's, there's no evidence for that at all. And I think 1960-something, 
the Catholic Church said, oops, sorry, we didn't mean <laughs> to propagate a lie about her. But we do know that she is identified. This is like a part of, just like the one who Jesus loved, this is a part of how she identifies herself. She is the one from whom seven demons were cast out. Not wild. And seven demons, look, seven is the number of completion. That may have been sort of a colloquial way of saying she was totally possessed. Totally possessed. This is the woman who I think represents purity. So she is mentioned more often than half of the disciples. She was a financer of Jesus' ministry, along with several other women. And she's the only person that all the Gospels mention as being present at both the crucifixion and the resurrection. She is the primary witness. So she's the first to see the empty tomb. Isn't that amazing? This woman, Jesus had cast seven or who knows, maybe more demons out of her. She's the first to see the empty tomb. Remember, she went early in the morning. She saw that the stone was rolled away and she turned and went back and got Peter and John. The first to see the empty tomb. And then at the end of that passage in John 20, she's the last to leave. She lingers long enough to see Jesus. The first to see the resurrected Jesus. Pretty incredible, right? Pretty incredible. Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. So in seasons of transition, we streamline. Everything gets simpler. These are fundamentals, right? These are big, broad, huge building blocks. These aren't the little details. They affect all the little details, but these are huge, huge, huge things. Broad strokes, right? So we're zealous like Peter. We practice humility like John. We live in purity like Mary Magdalene. And when we do, here's the deal. This is, this is where it all comes together. The thing God's doing in the earth, everybody's going to respond to. There will be lots and lots of believers swept up into it. It's irresistible. It's just going to happen. We, we will respond from what's inside of us. So some people won't have a good reaction, but you're going to respond. It will happen. But these guys were aware enough that when this all occurred, they were able to step in in leadership. They were able to overcome the old wineskin. They were able to transition from the old covenant to the new. That's incredible. That's incredible. And then we have this moment where Peter, I love this, full of the Holy Spirit, they're at Pentecost. This is, it's wild, it's crazy. It's probably crazier than it was here in the 90s, right? It's crazy enough that people are walking by on the street going, what is happening in there? And Peter does this magnificent thing. He places what God's doing on the timeline. That's amazing. That means he shifted from being swept along by it to understanding it. Now he steps into this position. Intuitively, again, who knows what's really going on in his heart, but he stands up and he says, this is that which Joel saw. 
he's able to understand. Now he's not just experiencing these random interactions of the Holy Spirit where he's shooting into space and time and who knows what's going on. You're kind of a victim to the move of God because it just either happens or doesn't. He's understanding that there's a sequence, that there's a scope, that, there's, that God is doing something in the earth and he sees it in its place. He steps up. And that word, I spoke about this last year at Easter, that word for him when he literally rose up, there's a word that means to shift position that's usually meant for getting up. But the specific word that Luke uses, and he uses it a couple of other times, is anastami, which basically means he had an internal resurrection. Something came to life. It caused him to stand up. Something in that moment, I believe he began to believe in his conversion when Jesus took him, walked with him by the Sea of Galilee in that famous moment in John 21. Right? Jesus is walking along with him. He convinces him of his own conversion. And something inside of him shifts and he begins to trust his instincts. His instincts didn't go away. I think a lot of us are hoping we'll get tamed by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not what happens. We just get holy, right? So your personality carries through the sanctification. So Peter was a bull in a china shop before. He's a bull in a china shop after. But his instincts are holy. He trusts his gut because it's being governed by the Holy Spirit. All right, why don't you stand? All right. So as we navigate, as you navigate, you have a sphere of influence, right? You have your family, but you have a broader sphere of influence as well. These are tools I want us, this is just a challenge to us. This isn't theory. This is happening. This is real life. This is practicum, right? This is what's going on in the world. The transition is real. The shift is real. The upheaval is real. And it's not going to be long before this thing that's being prepared. Remember how bad it was before the Jesus People Movement. Everything was being prepared for this revival. The revival that we're currently being prepared for will occur too. And I want to be a Chuck Smith. I just want to have everything in order to set them up to go as far as possible without some strange emphasis that derails. Right? So we strip it down. We go back to basics. We walk in purity, we practice zeal, and we live humbly. And I'm telling you, I believe it'll work. I believe it'll work. And I believe this will be a house that houses when transgender people come back into the church and they're looking for creative miracles. They're going to come here, right? When the woman with 50 abortions comes in and she doesn't believe she can be restored, she's coming here. All those kids who tried crazy things and physically messed up their brains, they're coming here. And we're going to be ready for them. We're going to be ready for them, their odd culture, all of their ways of being that don't quite fit in. We're going to be ready for all of that stuff, and we're going to have the word of the Lord for them. Okay. So that's very sweet. Thanks. So, Father... We declare that Life Center is a place where you will have your way. We declare that Life Center is a place that will receive the next. That Life Center is a place where old wineskins are torn off and new ones are procured. We declare that this is a place that transitions successfully from the former to the next. 
that this is a place where the last move of God champions the next. It doesn't persecute the next. It champions the next. We declare that this is a place where creative miracles restore those who have no hope. We declare that this is a place where what was lost gets found. And we declare that this is a place that will host the imminent coming revival that will watch steward, get through the seasons of transitions in holy adoration, in holy surrender to Jesus. We declare that the Lordship of Jesus Christ will prepare our hearts for what is to come. And we say, Holy Spirit, come. Say it out loud. Just say, Holy Spirit, come. Now, here's the deal. He watches over those words. He's actually going to do it. He's actually going to do it. So I'm blessing you to occupy the space between now and what's coming the way those disciples did. And I'm blessing you to be prepared to lead in the next. In Jesus' name. Okay, if you need prayer, come forward. Otherwise, go get your kids and thank the volunteers. And we'll see you soon. Bless you.